TJ coming? He's not. TJ is at PT this morning. So I am solo manning Zoe's rapid fire questions. Um, so we're going to just see how many we can answer. I have a hypothesis that I'll be able to answer more uh, without TJ here. Um, I think we tend to both go long-winded. So with only one long-winded person, uh, maybe this will be even faster than than normal. Um, but you know, as we go, obviously, anytime you have uh, questions, feel free to drop them in the chat and we'll just like see how many we can knock out. I tried to choose some that are ones that I get very frequently in the logs and it just kind of runs the gamut. But for an overview, we're gonna be talking about calf soreness, shoe choice, how to get the most out of treadmill workouts, at what point in your workout you should do strides and how fast should you be going during your workouts. So just like full on runs the gamut. Um, and then once again, if you if anything just comes to you during the talk, if you feel inspired, uh, drop any question, no matter how relevant it may seem into the chat and we'll just, uh, I'll try to get there. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. because I feel like these are questions that um, a lot of runners have. So first one, why are my calves so sore? Um, well, <laughs> there can be a lot of answers to that. A lot of thing, a lot of times what we see with, well, there's usually kind of two uh, reasons for this. Actually, well, there's a lot, but it kind of breaks down into two camps. A lot of times runners calves will be sore if they're not properly activating their glutes and their posterior chain. So if you think about like, if your butt isn't doing sufficient work, your calves are gonna pick up the slack. I think we've all seen runners like and seen their calves and been like, whoa, like, oh my God, like, what is he doing in the gym? Or like, what's up with his stride? <laughs> Just cause they'll have like really overdeveloped calves. And while we want to have strong calves, they're a significantly, I mean, if you think about your butt and your calf, like, you know, if you had to use one to pick up a barbell, you would use your butt because it is a much stronger, bigger muscle. And if you're over-reliant on your calves, you're just leaving a lot of strength and a lot of speed on the table. So one reason that runners will have sore calves is just they're overusing them essentially because they're not using their butt enough in ways that we have seen that are effective for runners to start relying or to start activating their glutes and their posterior chain more are working with a PT and strength coach specifically to see like where in your chain there might be a breakdown right like your leg is kind of like a chain reaction and so sometimes you just might need an expert to kind of like look at specifically like how, what your movement and loading patterns are to be like, okay, here's the inefficiency in your gait. And like, here's where you're maybe failing to activate your glute in the way that you should. Um, if you're just kind of a normal runner who like, maybe this isn't like the biggest struggle they're facing, but you do face persistent calf soreness. I like to do like big plyometric skips where I'll go into a back lunge and then I'll drive the leg that I'm lunging with up forward and through and just think about activating it like a full chain. Um, and that can be something to really kind of like neurologically stimulate the same way that you would like kind of do a stride, but you're breaking down the motion and focusing more on driving with that glute to bring the leg through and like really squeezing. Um, TJ was working with a strength coach for a while who had him literally shout fire <laughs> when he wanted to fire his glutes. It didn't not work. So you can always try that. Um, but, you know, just like finding ways to really activate, like to strengthen the glutes. So, you know, there's things like doing weighted squats and goblet squats can be somewhat effective, but since we are running and like the way that we want to, so squats can make the glutes stronger, but if you're struggling, like if you have a pretty strong glute, but you're struggling to activate it, think about choosing and working exercises into your running routine that mimic the way that you would fire and use your glutes while running. So like you know, plyometric skips, leg drives, um, step ups are really, really good and backwards lunges. So like finding that single leg strength that helps mimic the loading patterns that you experience while you're running rather than just being like, oh, well, I'm gonna have a strong butt because your butt can be as strong as possible but if you're not correctly activating it, then once again, you're leaving a lot of strength on the table. Secondarily, runners can get sore calves because of issues related to either their Achilles or their plantar fascia. So your plantar fascia is a little soft part of your kind of like the bottom of the foot and it connects up into your calf. And a lot of times we'll see where it connects 
in a way that is like involved with your calf essentially a lot of times we'll see runners who are using zero drop shoes like ultras or topos experience a lot of calf soreness because essentially what's happening particularly in runners that have a hyper flexible arch so like if you're you, one way that you can measure this is if you're sitting on the ground if you watch your arch and then if you're like well sit on the couch look at your arch and then stand up and if it looks like your arch is collapsing quite a bit that might mean that you have a hyper flexible arch or like a fairly flexible arch and if you think about like the way that the foot moves like with each strike that arch is going to flex um, every time you hit the ground and every time it does that it's essentially pulling on your calf so if your arches are flexing a whole heck of a lot your calf is actually getting over activated just because of the biomechanics of your foot ways that we can take a little bit of the action out of that arch is either supporting it directly with a shoe insert so like getting super feet or something like that that goes inside your shoe that directly supports the arch will take a little bit of flexion out of that and will take a little bit of pressure off the calf as well um, another way you can do it is getting shoes with a higher drop so like i would say eight millimeter and up um, a drop is the difference between like where your heel is in the shoe and where your toe is. So in a lot of shoes, what we're looking for is a slightly higher difference between where the toe is and the heel is. And having your heel be elevated just even a little bit, like eight to 10 millimeters in a shoe, will take a little bit of flexion out of the arch without supporting it directly. Um, I think one kind of thing that like a, a myth about running shoes that people tend to get wrong is there is literally like maybe one shoe ever that actually has arch support in it, um, just because the human arch is so variable that no shoe company ever besides ASICs for like one shoe ever can actually like actually design a shoe to directly support the arch. So I don't know. I just, if anyone's selling you a shoe with arch support, be very skeptical. Um, you know, I wouldn't go looking for a shoe with arch support. I would get a shoe that feels good. And if you feel that you need additional arch support, go ahead and put an insert like super feet in there. Um, but a lot of times runners, because like there's a lot of... <laughs> you know, the brand Ultra and Topo, they make shoes that have like a really nice wide toe box. And those are popular with a lot of athletes, particularly trail ultra and endurance athletes. Um, I am usually hesitant to recommend those to athletes just because that zero drop does put a lot of extra stress on the plantar fascia, on the arch, on the heel, on the Achilles, and by extension, the calf. Um, so if you're struggling with calf soreness, any kind of ankle issues, any kind of Achilles issues, any kind of plantar fascia issues, I would steer away from low drop shoes. And I would say anything that's five millimeters or less kind of falls into that low or no drop category. Um, and that's, you know, if you, a lot of people really like topos and, um, ultras because they have like a really nice wide toe box and they feel that it helps their stride. I will say that for my part, I haven't seen any totally convincing evidence that moving towards a zero drop shoe significantly helps. And this is like not anecdotally, this is like I have not seen a peer reviewed study that suggests that moving towards a zero drop shoe is beneficial in terms of injury prevention or strength for the majority of runners. So if you're kind of looking like around for issues of like, once again, related to your plantar fascia or calf soreness, one kind of easy fix can just be getting into a shoe that has a slightly higher heel toe offset um, or looking into an arch support. Like if you're just like dyed in the wool, love your ultras, like I can't get you, you know, you're just, you're not gonna let them go. I think looking for an insert can be a good solution for a lot of people. Some people are able to run in them happy with zero issues pretty much forever, and that's great. But we also see a lot of people who just like love the way they feel, but will like literally develop plantar fasciitis and like we can't get them out of their zero drop shoes. Um, you know, don't don't run in shoes that injure you just because they feel good. Um, yeah, that's kind of all I had to say about calf soreness is make sure you're wearing appropriate footwear and make sure you're activating your glutes and that your glutes are strong kind of like leads into our second question is what are the best running shoes? Which is a super fun question to answer because there is no explicit answer. Um, but this is something that like people a lot of times, oh, Sarah Strong asks, how frequently do you replace inserts? So unlike running shoes, which need to be replaced every 350 to 400 miles, inserts you can wear until they literally break down. Um, just because with shoes, like you have essentially the foam compresses over time, since inserts are made out of plastic with like a much smaller layer of foam, I would, you know, when I, when I used to work in a running specialty store, we wouldn't pressure people to replace their inserts and like 
until they literally broke or just started feeling bad to the point where you're like, this is no longer comfortable in my shoe or it's like falling apart. Um, that's the good, you know, while inserts kind of are an upfront investment, they can be like 60 to 80 bucks. Like they're not, you know, they're not free. <laughs> um, they do last for quite a while, primarily because they use plastic, which does not break down quite as quickly as ethyl vinyl acetate, which is like the soft part of most shoes. For shoes, um, once again, like I said, for a lot of shoes, you're going to want to replace those every 350 to 400 miles. And that kind of depends on the softness of the shoe. I find brands like Nike and Hoka uh, tend to break down a lot faster because they use EVA infused with oxygen. And so the air essentially leaks out and the foam just breaks down because the structure um, isn't quite there. Uh, some brands like Adidas tends to last for a very long time because their, their boost foam is fairly resilient and is like a more reinforced form of plastic. Uh, Brooks tend to last a little bit longer. Asics tend to last a little bit longer. Um, but I, I would never recommend wearing shoes for more than 400 miles. Um, and you can, you know, there's great ways to track <laughs> when you need to change out your shoes. You can like in Strava, if you guys are using Strava, you can literally put like the model of shoe you're using so that every time you run in your shoes, Strava will keep track of like this is when you need to change out your shoe and you can like even rotate through shoes. Like if you wear a different shoe, depending on the day or switch into trail shoes, um, that's a great way to track is through Strava. But if you haven't been keeping track, one way to like just kind of know when you might need to change out your shoes is it kind of starts to feel like your tires are getting a little flat and you'll start to see those wrinkles in the foam of the shoe, like the kind of like dirty wrinkles where it starts to look really, really compressed. And you'll just kind of feel like some of the spring has gone out of your step. So that's a good way to know that you need new shoes. And when it is time to get new shoes, my primary recommendation is to go to your local running store. Now that things are kind of opening back up and you know we're able to like shop responsibly with masks and some form of protection, I would recommend everyone, if you haven't ever done this, go to your local running store and get a gait analysis. Something that we've seen be hugely effective with our athletes, particularly ones doing significant road mileage, is making sure that you have a shoe that works for your biomechanics. What I mean by that is like, if you go to a local running store and get a gait analysis, they'll put you up on a treadmill and they'll like film you typically in slow motion to see to what degree you overpronate. The majority of humans overpronate some amount. Like I overpronate, like it's not like it's something that you see, like, you know, elite, like Elliot Kipchoge probably overpronates to some extent. It's like a very normal thing. It's basically just how your biomechanics adjust to the stress of running dependent on like what the angles of your particular like musculoskeletal system are. Um, so most athletes have a little bit of internal ronation, uh, internal rotation, pronation. Um, very rarely we'll see supination, which is when your ankles kind of angle out. Um, that's usually associated with like things like dwarfism that are a lot less common in runners, um, but you do see, but most likely you don't supinate. Um, I think in all of my years of doing gait analyses, I saw like one person who supinated and it was because they had like an actual like deformity of their lower leg. So it's pretty uncommon. Um, if you do overpronate, kind of one of the fixes for that is to get into a pair of shoes that has some form of medial stability, which means kind of on the inner side of the shoe, there'll be two different densities of foam that just kind of keep it from rotating inwards without like necessarily like forcibly changing your biomechanics. One of the nice things about getting shoes that have a little bit of pronation protection are that you, you know, it can't hurt, right? Like a lot of people are, have this idea that if they're not in neutral shoes, then like they're not running in a way that's natural. But essentially if you overpronate or not, your body is really only going to leverage that protection to the point that it benefits your body. It's kind of like if you were walking downstairs and there was a handrail, like you wouldn't use the handrail unless you like fell into it essentially. So shoe pronation protection works in a lot of the same way. It's there if you need it, but it doesn't alter your stride unless you're leaning on it. Uh, so I definitely recommend if you're looking for a new pair of shoes, going to a running store, getting a gait analysis, and then trying a lot of different pairs on. Um, you know, as someone that reviews shoes professionally, I find that a very frustrating job. I don't like recommending shoes for people because I just think you have to try a bunch on. Like what works for me is not going to work for you. And it kind of, it totally depends on what your specific biomechanics are, um, what kind of feel you're looking for. If you prefer a firmer shoe or a softer shoe, um, if you're looking for um, 
sorry, Slack is blown up. <laughs> um, if you're looking for something a little bit springier, a little bit cushier, um, and all of those things vary. Another thing that I really, really recommend against is don't wear your trail shoes on the road. Um, trail shoes often have a rock plate, which is very firm and stiff, and that can kind of meaningfully alter your stride in a way that could lead to injury risk. Um, and it just wears down the lugs of your trail shoes. So essentially you're, you know, it's, I would rather an athlete wear road shoes on the trail than trail shoes on the road. Uh, so if you can only buy one pair of shoes, I would, I would get really good road shoes and, uh, you know, stick to less technical trails. Then don't be wearing shoes that have like five millimeter lugs out on the road. Cause you're just gonna, you're gonna alter your stride in ways that aren't necessarily conducive for economy or efficiency. And you could be raising your potential for injury just because it's a lot of shoes like just are stiffer. And so that's going to change how your foot flexes within the shoe, which is beneficial on trail. But when you're on road, um, you just don't need all that extra weight and protection. Yeah, it's kind of my spiel on shoes is that there is no one answer, but that it can't hurt to go uh, shop locally and get help from professionals who know what they're doing. So yeah. My next question was how do you get the most out of treadmill runs? Um, and just to give myself a couple seconds to catch my breath and drink coffee, does anyone here do the majority of their runs on the treadmill? I know Kristen's kind of a treadmill boss, used to be back in Boulder. I don't know if you're doing treadmill runs anymore or if you're enjoying the beautiful Sedona sunshine, but- um, I spend a lot of time on the treadmill in the winter uh, for specific workouts just because I'm in Wisconsin for reference and it's icy and snowy and trying to do speed work with questioning footing is not fun. So I spend, I spend a quite a, quite a bit of time in the winter on the treadmill. I try to run outside, but definitely a good amount of time. Yeah, that's such a good point. I, you know, I think the treadmill sometimes gets a bad rap. Um, it's not necessarily the place in my training where I find like the most joy day to day, but it has a lot of really great specific training applications, both in terms of like running on ice sucks and isn't like great for anyone. Um, I will go to almost any length to avoid wearing yak tracks, <laughs> which I find uh, pretty odious. Um, treadmills can be really great for developing economy and efficiency and did a little bit of research digging into how athletes can get more out of their treadmill runs and came up with some pretty interesting things. I've had a lot of athletes mention that they try to run with the treadmill at a 1% grade to better mimic outdoor running. Um, and if you actually dig into the research, um, so this has only ever been tested on male athletes. I couldn't find a single instance of them using female athletes even. So, you know, that's, how good is the science even really if they didn't even throw one lady up on the treadmill to see but essentially if you're running 709 like if you're running seven minute miles or faster then putting your treadmill at a one percent grade does tend to better mimic outdoor running but if you're running slower than seven minute miles which like you know i'm not i'm not doing a lot of runs that are at six I'm not doing any runs at 650 pace, um, then it doesn't matter. Like if you have it on zero or 1%, um, just run in a way that feels good for you on the treadmill. There's really no distinguishable difference. Uh, they theorize that potentially it could like people's relative perceived exertion would change on the treadmill due to other like ambient factors. Like since there's less wind, there's less air resistance on the treadmill, since you're not like moving through wind and outdoor air you're like in a closed room there's no air circulation you have less air resistance so people like that'll change how you perceive your exertion depending on what speed you're going like if you're running you know honestly much slower than an eight minute mile uh air resistance is really not the thing that you're that you're worried about <laughs> really like we're not you know we're not cyclists in the tour de france we can we can handle a little bit of uh, wind resistance um another thing i found is that having a lack of airflow can actually change runners perceived exertion, right? Like if you're in kind of a stuffy room and it's warmer, unlike running outside, that's going to make running feel harder. And they, there was actually another study that showed that runners who just had a box fan by their treadmill had much lower relative perceived exertion. So just like opening a window, getting a little bit of airflow around your treadmill can make it feel a little bit easier. Um, but, uh, 
yeah, 1%, like that rule doesn't apply to um, all treadmill workouts. It, you know, every treadmill is calibrated kind of differently. So just make sure that you're not a slave to the numbers. I think that one thing I see athletes struggle with the most on treadmills is you're just like forced to stare like at your metrics the whole time. Um, I would recommend you either like put duct tape over that or cover it up with a towel or something. Cause those numbers just may like literally may not be that meaningful like depending on how well your treadmill's calibrated it could like even if it's off by like 0.1 you know over the course of 10 miles that's 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 a significant percentage that it's off right like that's seconds to the mile um so just like don't live and die by those numbers um some studies suggest that injuries like actually stem more from repetitive motion than from surface hardness um so you know treadmills are nice and soft which is great for a lot of people's joints but that's actually correlated with less risk of injury than just you know, when you're on a treadmill, you can kind of get stuck in the same pattern of like running, running, running. Um, so a way to kind of circumvent that is to just change up the grade every so often, um, add in a little bit of a hill, uh, you know, do a little, like if you can go downhill on a, some treadmills are fancy enough that you can do a little bit of a downhill, but just mix it up and make sure that you're not becoming, you know, addicted to the numbers on the screen. Um, they may not even be that accurate and make sure you're not just like, you know, doing 10 miles, like, you know, not changing up the pace, not changing up the grade at all, because that, that, that certainly doesn't mimic outdoor running very much at all. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, just for the big kind of rule of thumb for running on the treadmill is run by how you feel, not by what the numbers say. Um, you know, it's like the same rule that we use when we run outside, right, is to not run by pace. But I think that a lot of people get kind of sucked into the fact that once again, treadmill has like a big, billboard of your data on it that you're kind of forced to stare into throughout your workout so just make sure like you know maybe even use your watch like a lot of watches now are calibrated to be able to detect pace distance time on treadmill and that can be you know just like try to train in a way that's similar to how you would train outside um and just like don't get too addicted to the numbers um that's one thing that's like for sure gonna up your perceived exertion is if you're just staring at your pace the whole time, like nothing will ever make you feel slower than just watching your pace. <laughs> um, another thing that was shown to uh, decrease relative perceived exertion is listening to fun music. So if you're kind of bummed about getting on the treadmill, you're not really feeling it, it can be hard to gin up a lot of excitement around running you know, like a hamster on a wheel, um, just play fun music, find a fun audiobook, watch TV. Um, I like watching uh, the food, food network whenever I, back when we had gyms that were open, um, I would watch food network on the treadmill. Uh, I hope to one day do that again. Um, but yeah, the key is to just go by feel, cover up the numbers, do whatever you have to do to just put a little bit less of like to hang a little bit less of your self-worth on those numbers. Um, one application that I really like treadmills for is for athletes who are training for more mountainous races, but live in urban areas. Um, I love three minute hills. <laughs> Any of my athletes have can can testify to the fact that I love giving people a, a good three five by three minute hill workout. Um, and a lot of people, if you just don't live near a three minute hill, tread hills can be a good alternative with the caveat that there are a few race specific workouts where we will intentionally try to run the downhills a bit harder than we would in the context of a normal run. And if you you can't really pound out downhills on the treadmill. Um, so that's kind of one of the uh, the shortcomings of that of that mechanism is that you aren't able to get the same kind of eccentric loading that you would if you were just running outside in the real world. Mike Pennington did a three and a half hour long run on a treadmill during wildfires. Um, which I mean, this is something I always tell my athletes, like the, um, the amount of mental toughness that you're able to develop from just being able to like run for hours and hours on the treadmill. It's not something we would wish on our worst enemies, but it can really be a great way to develop mental toughness and to just make sure that you're getting your consistency down. Um, if you're just like really not feeling it on the treadmill, you can always cut the run a little bit shorter um, just because we don't want you to go to like a very dark mental place because you've been forced to, you know, to, to grind it out on the treadmill. Just do what works for you, but know that the treadmill is a really great tool to help with consistency, efficiency, and economy, particularly during winter months. Um, I also know that, I mean, you know, everyone's access to gyms and gym equipment is different and changing day by day. Um, so just know that like, if you know, the weather is 
crazy bad and you don't have access to a treadmill um, that it is up to you to decide like is the weather so bad that my health is at risk or like my training would be inefficient or do I kind of need to go out here and uh, bank some mental training points and run in the snow because uh, there's a time and a place for both right like you always want to do the training on any given day that will allow you to train even better for like the next five to six years and that's kind of the rule of thumb I always use is like you know I know that this run in and of itself doesn't matter but like is it worth it to push it and like you know, if there's lightning, not worth it. Right. But you know, if, is it a chance for me to like develop a little bit of mental toughness and to run when it's cold outside? Like, yes, maybe not to the point where my health is at risk, but where I will feel that I'll get a little bit of a mental boost just from running on a day when probably not that many of my competitors are running. Does anyone else have any treadmill workouts that they think are really awesome or they really love? Can I add something quick, Zoe? Yeah. Uh, so, so you mentioned running by feel and just an example of that is like, I, I have a treadmill and there's a calibration setting on it, but like, okay, you, you go a week and you're running on it. And then the next week you go on it and it's like, you set it to whatever speed you were going and all of a sudden you're like dying and you're like, what happened? And it's some like your calibration can get off. And if you're at a gym, definitely like you can come jump on one day and run a eight thirty. And the next day you jump on a different treadmill and put it at 8.30 and it can really be 7.45 or 9.30 or whatever. So just being aware of that is a huge thing because if you do become a slave to the number, you're either going to work way too hard or not hard enough or, uh, but they, I mean, that can happen daily on a treadmill just from whatever use and age and I don't know, all of it. So yeah. Like who knows what the guys at the gym are doing to your treadmill, right? Like, you know, it's just use that as permission to just put a little less stock in those numbers. Cause it like, it really doesn't matter. You know, like even if you are doing like a more advanced workout, like what your pace is on any one given day is just like a drop in the, it's like one grain of sand in your training sand castle, right? Like that one day doesn't matter so, so much. It's the bigger picture that matters. And like being able to not over-invest in the numbers on the treadmill or even on your watch on a given day, that'll allow you to like, you know, see, see the forest instead of the trees, right? Like if getting on the treadmill and you're noticing that like you're relative perceived exertion is way, way higher um, as compared to what it's been in the past, um, that may not be the best training tool for you. So just do whatever you have to do to really tune into how you feel. Um, and we'll actually get into relative perceived exertion again later in this chat. But Tom, you make such a great point is like, it's just gonna, I mean, just like how running outside, right? Like if you're tired, if you just ate a ton of pad thai, if you had a hard day at work, like your perceived exertion is gonna change and that's okay. It doesn't make you a worse athlete on any given day. It makes you an athlete who got six hours of sleep because you have a kid or a puppy or you had a big presentation at work and all those things are they're just going to affect what your exertion is on any one day but what matters is that you get out there and you just like start banking those bricks anyway right like any day that you can get more touches on the ground you're just stacking bricks it doesn't always matter like what the numbers are associated with those bricks it just matters that you just keep getting out there and doing it day after day whether it's on the treadmill in the snow like however however it works best for you to get psyched and get out there and stay safe and healthy like that's the best way to train yeah. The next um, question was, at what point in my runs should I do my strides or hills? Um, that is a great question. We get that a lot, particularly with runners who are slightly newer to the program. Uh, the answer is actually pretty, pretty easy, is that as long as you're warmed up, you can do your strides or hills whenever it works for you. Um, you know, I wouldn't go right out of your house or like hop right on the treadmill and start doing strides right away. I typically like to get a mile or two of warm up just to make sure I'm like really settled into like what my easy pace is, um, make sure I'm feeling really good, really warm. I've done a good warm up before I even started my run. And then I'll do strides once I'm like 15, 20 minutes in or so, um, one or two miles, just kind of like whatever works for you and your day. For hills, since a lot of us have to like run to our hill, um, that'll dictate <laughs> when we do the hills. Once again, I would like not do your hills right off the bat during the workout, um, but as long as you're warmed up, it doesn't matter a whole, whole lot in the context of your run um, when you get those hills done. Um, you know, some other thing, I mean, you could even do them right at the end of your run, I suspect, and this is not something I have research on, but 
anecdotally feel that you will get slightly more out of your hills or strides if you don't do them like the very last thing, right? Because you also want to be able to train your body to like go do your hills, go do your strides, and then lock back into that easy pace. Something that we see a lot is that after you do hills or strides, it kind of like gets, you know, it gets you gets you going, makes you excited. It reinforces like that neuromuscular loading pattern of speed. And so you're more likely to go a little bit faster after you've done your speed work. Um, that's totally fine and great. As long as you're, you know, still keeping it easy, just always remind yourself, even though, you know, a lot of times you may feel as if you can run faster after that speed work, just go right back into that super, super easy chill pace. Um, but other than that, it's not a huge, huge issue. Uh, when you do your strides, when you do your hills, make sure the hills are consecutive. Don't try to like sprint a hill, run three miles, sprint a hill, because um, we are trying to get some pretty specific aerobic and neuromuscular um, adaptations with those hills. And so having them be repetitive is pretty key. And just to reiterate what I'm sure a lot of people have seen in the log, the best way to do hills, unless otherwise specifically specified by your coach, um, you know, for what, however, you know, long your stride is 15 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, you're going to want to run up a hill, probably six to 8% grade, same for a treadmill, um, as hard as you can for that amount of time, then you turn around and you jog easily back down as part of your recovery. And then you can kind of like jog around, walk, do whatever you need to do to get your heart rate back under control before going again. But you do want to be fully, unless once again, otherwise specified by your workout, you want to be fully recovered before you try to charge hard again. So you're just kind of resetting. There are some times, particularly in athletes who are training for more mountainous races that will have them do workouts with realistic race run down recovery, which is when you'll run up and then you'll run down and like, there's no breaks. You're trying to go at a consistent effort the whole time, which essentially teaches your legs to race down the downhills um because a lot of athletes will get really good at moving uphill and then they'll just see the downhill and they're like great i have a break and uh we don't want to do that like when you're racing the downhills are not a break they're an opportunity in the same way that power hiking isn't a break it's an opportunity so we're always tuning into how we can keep our effort more consistent and so just pay attention to what it specifies in your workout if you're doing a rundown recovery or if you're doing like an easy jog recovery but in the context of most athletes workouts you want to be fully recovered between your hill sprints um and it you know it, it varies for strides you'll see a lot of times like either you know some length of time between 30 seconds to two minutes between your strides um and that just kind of changes what specific adaptations we're going for in the workout but a good rule of thumb is that the longer the rest is between your efforts, whether it's a stride or a hill, um, it targets a different energy system. So if you have a longer rest, you should be able to go faster during the moment of intensity. If you have a shorter rest, then the focus is less on hitting that top end speed than it is of like training turnover, even when you're fatigued and using different energy systems than just that top end. Um, but both do reinforce good economy and high output. And one thing that we really love about hill strides for athletes, um, essentially anyone who starts with our program, you're going to see hill strides way before you do flat strides because you're able to maximize power output while going uphill while minimizing the impact you get. Because you think about like how hard it is to go uphill. Um, you can really put out a lot of power, but you're like you're falling less like there's less impact because the ground comes up to meet you. So hills are one of our favorite tools. We like to encourage athletes to think about them as speed work in disguise. Um, I love hill strides. They're my favorite. Um, Actually, the next question, I think I can maybe even toss to Kylie. This one should be pretty easy. I, I won't put you on the spot with anything too difficult. Um, but one athlete asked if they should be supplementing with BCAAs. Do you have any input on that? Um, so I always preface with supplement questions that most things you can get from the diet. So um, good sources, good food sources of BCAAs are going to be found in dairy products, tofu, beans. Um, and so if you're, you know, looking to actually get in some of those things um, after a workout, you could always maybe make a recovery shake with like Greek yogurt or tofu or something in it. Um, but if you find that a convenience factor wise, you might need a little bit extra, I would say BCAAs would be fine for recovery. Um, and 
the thing that I usually say when choosing a supplement is making sure that it does have a 30 third party certification. So it's certified for sport or NSF certified. Um, that just ensures they're doing like a little bit of extra testing um, because the FDA doesn't regulate the supplement industry very well. Um, but I would say, is it necessary? Probably not. Does that help? Yeah. <laughs> I think that pretty much covers it. And I feel like that, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of the response um, for most supplements, right? Like the majority of things, if you're eating pretty solid diet, particularly if you're working with a nutritionist like Kylie and trying to get a lot of well-rounded nutrition, then essentially you'll just end up peeing out most of what you put in. Yeah, I think there are a few exceptions. You know, some women that really struggle with iron, um, that can be one that is really pretty essential or vitamin D as well. Um, so those are some that are definitely, um, I would say are a little more like high priority for some people. Um, and then convenience wise, like I was saying, sometimes protein powders can be beneficial if you're in a rush or, you know, you're making a recipe and you want to up the protein a little bit with a little protein powder or something that's fine. Um, but yeah, like having a reliance on supplements, I think can take you down a slippery slope. Um, because I, I've worked with some athletes that have 20, 20 different supplements that they're taking and you know, you're spending so much money on that. Whereas if you got a lot of those things and focused on your diet a little bit, maybe you wouldn't have to spend as much money on them. So yeah, I would agree. Most things from, from food. Caveats. Yeah. Except for iron and vitamin D, those are, those are pretty big. And that's something that we, um, as not doctors recommend that our athletes invest <laughs> and talk with their health professional about if they feel it is a problem for them, particularly women and particularly iron, which, you know, iron levels and female endurance athletes, that can be a whole, can be a challenge for a lot of people, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Well, that was the next question. Um, the next one is how fast should I be doing my workouts? Um, so once again, this is a point where we need to tune into relative perceived exertion or RPE rather than your pace. Um, a good rule of thumb though, is if you're doing your workout, like your Wednesday workouts with your intervals, if you're doing those so fast that you feel you need to walk or stop, then you're probably doing them a little bit too fast because one of the things we really need to work, like one of the purposes behind the majority of those, uh, workouts is to, essentially like keep the aerobic engine firing. And so if you're walking or stopping, it's like hitting reset on your workout in a way that's counterproductive and undermines the intent of the workout. Um, so just make sure that you're not wanting to walk or stop. Another good kind of rule of thumb is that you should be able, unless, the, unless otherwise specified by your coach, like if you have 10 one minute intervals or eight two minute intervals, the last couple sets should be your fastest. Like you don't want to go for broke on the first couple, right? Like, I think, you know, we've all had the experience of just going like all out on the first couple intervals um, and then totally undermining the rest of the workout. You should want to get stronger and you can always fine tune as you go and get a little faster and turn up the heat, but you don't want to go all out on the first one and then totally tank the rest of your workout. Because remember, we're always looking for progress over perfection and you, you can get a lot out of a workout that's not perfect. Um, in fact, I would say I've never quite perfectly executed a workout, um, but the intent is to always be striving to get better and better and get better at regulating our intensities. Um, and something else I would say about this is, you know, we've had athletes come from a heart rate training background. Um, and I would caution against being overly reliant on zones or specific heart rate metrics because your body, I mean, it's a human body. It's a complicated machine. It doesn't work in neat boxes or zones. So instead think about your effort level in terms like of an intensity spectrum. Um, a lot of you guys, um, unless you were one of our like first 10 athletes, uh, your base sheet, your training log should have an effort guide tab at the bottom. And that uses cues like talking and breathing metrics as a good way to kind of tune into what your effort level is. Because like we say all the time, your easy run should be done 
done at a totally conversational pace. And that's kind of our like starting point. Like you should be able to run easy enough that like we could have a conversation just like this while we're running along together. And that's gonna change day by day, right? Like don't get addicted to being like, well, my pace is always 10:30 pace easy and I'm going to do that forever for the rest of my life cuz like some days it's going to be faster and that's awesome some days it's going to be slower that's equally awesome like we're looking for the signal in the noise we're looking for that number to get faster over the course of months and years not like oh I had one day that was super awesome now I'm an amazing athlete or like I had one day that was terrible I am a trash athlete like neither of those things are really um incredibly useful data points so once again steer away from extrapolating about who you are as a person or an athlete dependent on like one run for better or worse, right? Like we're all going to have great days. We're all going to have bad days. That kind of doesn't matter as long as we're gradually increasing the number of good days over time. And once again, when I say over time, I don't even mean a training cycle. I mean like years of training. It takes a while. <laughs> um, great tagline for microcosm coaching. Years later, you'll be better. Um, so, you know, instead of focusing too much on intensity, um, make sure that you're kind of thinking about it in terms of like of spectrums and like this can even vary within the context of a workout like your fifth interval could feel could be a very different pace than your seventh interval, as long as we're hitting a similar as long as we're aiming to hit similar intensities, that's kind of what we're looking for. So don't, once again, don't get too addicted to your pace. Don't get too addicted to your output metrics in the context of a workout. Be striving for relative perceived exertion. Um, we've had a lot of athletes that are maybe coming to this without a lot of experience in terms of like, how fast should my tempo be? How fast should my intervals be? Um, how fast should my easy days be? And one tool that we've we use with a lot of caveats is the Jack Daniels VDOT calculator. Um, this is something that has worked well for athletes doing a lot of their training on the road. And it's essentially a tool that you can Google Jack Daniels VDOT calculator, um, like the letter V and then DOT. Um, and you can put in metrics from a, a race. So like if you've done a marathon, if you've done a half marathon, 10K, 5K, you put in your estimated best efforts, which you can also get from Strava. Um, and it'll tell you, it'll give you kind of a ballpark for what your easy pace should be, for what your tempo effort should be, and um, other things. The, the big caveats on that, though, is that that is going to change if you're at altitude. <laughs> it's going to change um, depending on kind of like what part of the training cycle you're in. So I don't usually like to use it too much to tell athletes like this is what pace you should be hitting your strides at. I do like to use it to encourage athletes to slow down because we see a lot of people um, doing their easy days just a little bit too fast. And so once again, your easy day should never be faster than your marathon effort. They should never be faster than your half marathon effort. And if you have that information about what your marathon or half marathon, 5K, 10K PRs are, you can plug that in. It'll kind of give you a range for what your easy day should be. And it'll give you a fairly specific number for what your tempo effort should be, but always take those things with a grain of salt. They're just a ballpark. Maybe you'll go faster, maybe you'll go slower, but it can be a good place to start if you're just unfamiliar with um, things like tempo effort or interval effort. Um, yeah. So another thing that we really are kind of like trying to steer, you know, once again, so like looking at how fast you should do your workouts, we always caution that focusing too much on intensity in the context of your training um, can curtail aerobic development, right? Like if you train too hard too often, you're essentially going to become like a very strong, tough, inefficient athlete. Um, you know, whether like, unless you're trying to PR in the 400, you really need to be focused. I mean, even if you are trying to PR in the 400, the majority of your training should be focused um, on aerobic development, just because to even advance your speed, you need to have a very strong aerobic base. Um, and that's why, you know, before we go into new training blocks with athletes, we always do a, at least a week or so, a couple weeks of purely aerobic training, just to kind of really refine that engine, bank a bunch of easy miles, and then we start to layer in speed on top of that. Um, yeah, this is particularly important for athletes pursuing actual training. One thing that we'll see a lot um, with athletes that are newer to like formalized or consistent training is they will, um, since they're not used to going intentionally easy on a lot of days, they'll come into the program and they'll be running their easy days like above marathon effort, um, which they'll be able to sustain very temporarily just because they'll have, you know, only be doing 
like less than less than maybe 50 or so minutes of training a day. And then we'll just see them hit pretty epic plateaus or they'll feel very tired or very sore, very run down. It's essentially because um, because they're training. Um, and so, you know, one thing we just really want people to uh, just really be intentional about running slow. Um, and if you're ever feeling super tired, super run down, one thing that can be really good is to just take an honest look at uh, how quickly you're running your easy days. Um, Cause you can't run them too slow. As long as you're actually running, you're going a great effort. Um, another thing that we've seen be useful for athletes is the Borg scale, um, which is like a 20 point scale of relative perceived effort that can kind of help athletes tune into um, like what their effort is just because a lot of times it can be, you know, it can be hard. Like if you've either come from a background of purely like pace-based training, heart rate-based training, um, or no training to tune into like what effort level you should be running things at. And the Borg scale is a great way to know, like, am I keeping this day truly easy? Am I getting to the correct intensity level for tempos? Um, and that one, since it's not pace dependent on, unlike Jack Daniels VDOT calculator can be more applicable to trail athletes or athletes doing like uphill tempos, uphill effort levels. Um, so that can be really, really useful for that. Um, last question was, should I take a day off when I get my flu shot? Um, the answer is probably not. Um, you know, I would, if you, if you feel concerned about being able to get your run in after a flu shot, try running before the flu shot. Um, but, you know, I mean, there are some symptoms related to getting a flu shot, like soreness in the arm. Some people report experiencing fatigue potentially related to like the fact that you're immune, you're gonna have an immune response to what's going on. Um, but really you should not feel so fatigued or so uh, you know, affected by the flu shot that you should need to take a full day off to accommodate that. Um, and if you do feel like you would need a day off after getting your flu shot, run beforehand. Um, and everyone should get flu shots is the final statement on that. Um, if, you know, if the only way that I can convince you to get a flu shot is by taking a day off running, so be it, but definitely get the flu shot. Definitely try to run through that. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, question from, ooh, how to mentally hate road miles less? I seem more tired on road than trail. Um, yeah, that's, you know, I would just say like practice, right? And like, don't, um, you know, I think, you know, while it's really nice to have like the mental stimulus of like scenery and like awesome views and like variable terrain that we get on trail, some of the most effective training is done on the road because there's, you're just able to really target your efficiency and economy a lot better. Um, so don't be afraid. I mean, definitely don't be afraid of running on the roads. Um, definitely view it as like an amazing tool to advance your trail running practice. Um, and I would say like, for me, the tools I use, I love road running, but a lot of that's because I just really love listening to podcasts and listening to audiobooks and listening to really fun music. Um, so, you know, use like find tools that make it fun for you and then find a way for you to tell yourself that like that kind of training is integral for you to be able to enjoy the trail more. Cause if you never, if you only ever run on trail, likely you're going to slow down and you're going to plateau just because you're not getting the same economy and efficiency work that other athletes are. Um, and don't, you know, try not to over identify with being a trail runner in some aspects. I think a lot of people like particularly, you know, in the very like Colorado e-trail community, there's some people that are kind of snobby about like only ever running trail. Um, and you can be a badass trail. Like I don't run trail like nine months out of the year. You can be an amazing trail runner and not overemphasize trail running in your training and by embracing the roads too. So just find ways to make it mentally engaging for you. Um, and I think a lot of those tools that you'll need to make road running feel more engaging, um, you'll need to use in races, right? Like there will be a moment during your race where probably you will have to flex that mental muscle and stay engaged in the race in the same way that you have to flex that mental muscle um, during training. Like the unfortunate truth about running is that it's not gonna be a nonstop fun fest 24, seven, 365, right? Like you have to find ways to tell yourself like, I am having fun, uh, whether it's through music, you know, doing a group run, um, listening to audiobooks, like just find something that, you know, helps you reorient your relationship to road running.
Um, Cause it's a lot of times it can just be a story that you tell yourself. Like I'm a trail runner. I don't like running the road. The unfortunate truth is to become a good trail runner. You do have to get pretty comfortable and pretty fast on the road. Um, so just, you know, use that. It doesn't mean you have to like ever fall in love with like running road marathons or anything. Um, but it is a super valuable training tool slash like, I mean, it's like the biggest tool. Um, in your toolbox. Uh, Jason mentions that Zombie Run is a story app where you're a runner during the zombie apocalypse. You run missions while out running zombies and that you can forget while you're running roads. That sounds super fun and is like very Halloween appropriate. And I really love that idea. I've definitely heard of people like using that either like on the, on the treadmill or on road runs, using it to kind of gamify their run. I think that's a really good solution if you're kind of struggling to find your, you know, find your rhythm and find your joy out on the roads, um, embracing just fun, goofy things that make it more enjoyable, that kind of just change the story that you're telling around what your training is. Um, those are really, really great uh, tools. Um, from Jason on hard efforts. I think the perceived exertion should increase over the workout. Um, anything over critical power is barring from reserve. So it should get harder and harder. You just need to start easy enough so that you can finish the workout consistently. Totally correct, Jason. Like your perceived effort is going to like your 10th interval is going to feel different uh, than your, than your first interval, but you can always push to make it a little bit like harder like once again you you want to be able to finish stronger um and so that does mean that you necessarily need to start those first few intervals intentionally easy and i think that's a really good distinction to make um is that your perceived effort is going to change over the course of a run but if it changes too 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 dramatically then that likely means you started a little bit too hot um either in your maybe you weren't properly warmed up or um your first intervals were just you just hammered a little bit too hard yeah um well, i think that's all i got i haven't talked so much since uh last night i had to record the voice track for the DNF episode today and TJ had just sliced a jalapeno and I like seriously thought I was going to go into anaphylactic shock just because I was like I have my uh microphone set up like right here and like the jalapeno was so intense it just like filled the house and I had like it took me almost an hour to edit the voice track just because there were so many hacking coughing fits in the middle of it and it just like my throat was burning um very proud of myself for enduring podcasting under such dire conditions, but there we go. I think Jim Walmsley would be proud of me for uh, persisting in the face of um, a, a full-on cloud of jalapeno juice in the air. I've never experienced anything like it. Like, I didn't, I mean, I'm not like that close to the kitchen, like maybe I'm 10 feet away and I was like fully, fully thought I might need to be resuscitated if I was able to even finish the voice track. I think it's cleared out more or less now, but we made some very spicy salsa last night. Yeah. Any other questions, comments, concerns, haikus, moments of joy, fun weekend plans? So tired of hearing me talk that we're just like, oh my God, gotta bail now. Um, awesome, well, that's all I had for you guys. Uh, I think we got through seven questions today. So I did set the PR for Microcosm Rapid Fire Friday. Uh, take that, TJ. Um, yeah, happy Halloween, everyone. Stay safe. Eat candy. Um, man, I think I think I think Kylie did a really awesome. I can't remember if it was like a Halloween thing. I think you did like a a fun article one time that was like about the best like Christmas candies to fuel your run or schemo mission with. Um, so it was, it was the, it was something like that. It's found on fasterskier.com. It was about Halloween candy and fueling your runs. Okay, perfect. <laughs> well, I'm going to definitely have to reshare that because you are the, you are an expert and I'm going to eat candy in my long run this weekend. No one can stop me. I will support that. <laughs> <laughs> A balanced whole food diet. <laughs> Awesome. Everyone have a great weekend.